on the radio or live streamed on the radio. All right, so we welcome all of you and we welcome our listening audience on KFUO. And we are now in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. 1, verse 6. I am astonished how quickly you deserted from the one who called you in the grace of Christ into another gospel, which is not another. All right, this is the basis of the whole book. This is where he is laying out his concern. Now this word, I am astonished or I am amazed, is used in other places, and it's almost a sign of a special kind of literature. And the word is meant, the statement is meant to do two things. First of all, it is to shame them. Okay? It is to shame them for what they have done. Second of all, it is to get them to turn away from what they have done. He is astonished at how quickly this happened. From the one who called you, okay? The one who called you. God, in the grace of Christ, to another gospel, which is not another. Now, this is referring directly to the teachers, the false teachers that were now, that had come to Galatia and were adding to the gospel. And basically they were adding works. Circumcision, keeping the law, they were adding works. Now, this is a very serious matter to the Apostle Paul because notice how he says it's another gospel, but then he quickly says, which is not another. It's like he gave that a second thought. There is no such thing as another gospel. There is one gospel. There is one gospel. And anything else shouldn't even be called a gospel. Because the gospel is always totally focused upon what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. When you get away from that, it's not gospel anymore. Because you have ha added works, other things to it. Every religion in the world is works oriented except Christianity. And unfortunately, even within the body of Christendom, some have perverted that gospel. Some have given an emphasis to what human beings do. Now, when it comes to false teaching, the smallest thing can sometimes mushroom and cause all kinds of problems. So I'll give you a for instance. When you go back to the story of man's fall into sin, if someone teaches that he fell into sin, but there's some little spark in his heart that is still inclined to God, 
that heresy, and it is a heresy, will destroy the gospel. Because that little spark is man's doing. And immediately when you introduce man's doing, it's not gospel anymore. You see, we can't rely on the gospel if any of it is dependent upon us. Because we are sinful human beings. The gospel can only be relied upon and trusted if it is totally focused on what God has perfectly done for us in Jesus Christ. So here, that is why Paul is so upset. The gospel was going to be lost. And anytime you began to add works, the gospel is lost. It's not another gospel. It can't be called lost gospel. It has to be called law. It has to be called law. There's not another one. But then it says, there are some that trouble you and wish you to alter the gospel, to change, to pervert the gospel of Christ. That's referring directly to these teachers. They are troubling you. They want to pervert the gospel. So here he is saying they are doing this intentionally. You know, we talked a little bit last week about how the Sunday school teacher might do something accidentally. But Paul is accusing them of doing this intentionally. Perverting the gospel of Christ. And then he says, but if we are an angel from heaven preaches to you a gospel contrary to what we preach to you, let him be anathema. There's no easier way to translate it then, may they go to hell. That is what anathema means. May they go to hell. For preaching a gospel other than, now why does he throw angels in? Well, we don't fully understand that or know that, but no angel would do that. Okay, unless they're demons. So he is calling down a curse on them. He is calling down a curse. And it's not a mild curse. It's a very serious curse. And then he says it a second time. So we warn you, we warned you then, and now we say again, if someone proclaims the gospel to you contrary to what you received, let him be, let him be anathema. Now, it's always emphasized, biblical writers are always emphasizing certain things, and especially when they say them twice. All right? Especially when they say them twice. And, and um, he's speaking directly to those that are bringing this false message. That... That's the way he feels about this 
false teaching. He is very serious. He is very serious. Because this was his missionary work that they were trying to utterly destroy. Okay? So he is very harsh. This is the beginning of Galatians. No other book is like it. He does not come after people like this, but he did here. Uh, the rest of the book then deals with this. But this basically is the heart of the book. Everything else is to explain the true gospel. Yeah, bud. Wait a minute, wait a minute. One of the things we have to start doing for KFUO is if you're going to ask a question, you've got to ask it into a microphone. Oh, my goodness. Uh, the comment about the uh, angels from heaven, could that mean that, there was, that the people that were doing the distorting had a reputation as being uh, important or godly or something no, like that? No, we don't think so. There is some, some passages in the New Testament that talk about there being a mediation of angels from between God and man. That may be a part of it. But it would not be saying that the false teachers had high standing. Okay? We have no indication of that. Okay? No indication. But at certain points, including Galatians, there are times when angels are talked about as mediators when the word of God is given, like on Mount Sinai. That may be what it's from. But it's not that uh, the false teachers have some exclusive uh, position. Okay? All right, verse 10. Now, am I persuading men or God? Or men and God? Uh, your translations may say, am I seeking their approval? Okay. The word persuade here means, that, first of all, I'm, I'm trying to persuade men. Yes, he's trying to persuade them to change their mind. But how is he persuading God? We think that is him saying, I'm trying to persuade God to curse these guys. Okay? I'm trying to convince God to curse these guys because that's what they deserve. So that's why the God part may be in there. Okay? He is trying to get God to curse them. Or am I seeking to please man? Are these words an attempt to please human beings? If I seek to please men, then I am no longer a servant of Christ. Okay? And then we're going to start into a completely new section. And it's easy to read it and to think he's trying to defend what he said. And there's certainly some of that there. But what we're, what's really at the heart of this is Paul is defending the ministry that he has. That the ministry to preach the gospel to the Gentiles is not from human origin. It is from God. 
And so we're going to see this. For I know, you brothers, the gospel which was preached to you from me is not according to man. We're going to have several statements here where he says it is not. So it is not according to man, nor, okay, nor did I receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, he was not taught the gospel message and told to preach the gospel from a human being. Nor did it, he receive it from a human being, nor was he taught it from a human being. It came by the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, he's specifically talking about the road to Damascus. This is where he got his mission, his purpose, and the gospel message. Not from men, but from the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, he starts in here. Uh, you have heard, for you have heard about my manner of life then in Judaism, that I persecuted abundantly the church of God and tried to destroy it. The verb tenses here are very important. They're imperfect verb tenses. So the best way to translate it is, he says, you know my manner then in Judaism, that I abundantly kept on persecuting the church. It was constant. It was not a one-time act. It was constant. And tried to destroy the church. I kept on trying to destroy the church. Okay? So these are continuous actions that he was doing. Okay? This was not a one-time deal. And that's because he was in this, in Judaism, his manner of life. Okay? His manner of life. And I advanced, advanced in Judaism beyond many, uh, beyond those of my same age or same generation. Um, and I was trying, I was being zealous beyond, beyond with what I had with the traditions of the fathers. Now what he's saying is this, I was a Jew of Jews. I knew the traditions of the fathers. Now when he talks about the traditions of the fathers, what is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that when the law was given to Moses, beyond that, there were lots of interpretations written of how to keep that law. Those were not necessarily word of God, but the traditions of the fathers on how to keep the law. Notice he said he advanced beyond those of his own age. 
Okay? He was an expert in the law. You kind of get the impression here he was a real smart aleck. Okay? <laughs> real smart aleck. I know more than everybody else. Okay? And, and so, notice the word zealous. That word is used throughout the Old Testament by various people. Uh, Elijah said, I am very zealous for the Lord. Zealous means in this context that you, you basically give your whole being, your whole being to this mission. You give your whole being very zealous. All right. Now, um, he's very zealous for the Lord. Then God, it pleased God to set me apart from my mother's womb and call through his grace. Um, anybody else remember someone from the Old Testament that said they were called from their mother's womb to perform their prophetic ministry? Jeremiah. It's in the first chapter of Jeremiah, he said the same thing. So what Paul is saying now is, he was chosen by God before he was born to fulfill this task and purpose. And that it was only by God's call of his grace, because he certainly didn't deserve it, only by the call of his grace is he now what he is. And it says, and he revealed his son to me in order that I might preach him to the Gentiles. To the Gentiles. And, and uh, so now he's into the exact purpose for which God did, did this. And he was called from, um, from the womb. Uh, called from the womb. Now he goes on to affirm this calling. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. In other words, when God came to me on, at, on the road to Damascus, the first action I took was not to consult with flesh and blood. Because God had given me what he needed. Remember, he's still defending the fact that God's word came to him to preach. That's not of human origin. So he says, I did not consult. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. I did not go up to Jerusalem, did not go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I did not go up and consult with those that were already apostles. He's just cutting off any thought that this was of human origin. I did not go up there. Okay? But, 
went into Arabia and again returned to Damascus. All right. Now we're going to get into the part where the Apostle Paul is telling us about his journey. Now we've talked before about the fact of his um, being, we don't know about him for about 14 years. Okay. This is the beginning of that. He went to Arabia and Damascus, and then he says, and then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to meet Cephas and remained with him 15 days. So in other words, he's minimized. It, it took him three years before he even consulted with anybody at Jerusalem after Paul, uh, after Paul had seen Jesus on the road to Damascus. So he did not go consult with anybody for uh, three years, for three years. Then he finally went to Jerusalem to meet Peter and to, he was there 15 days. So he is minimizing how much time he spent there to again emphasize this was from God. This was from God. This was from God. Now, he then says, then he saw none of the apostles except James the brother of the Lord. Now, this is not James, the brother of John, as he was killed by Herod in Acts 12. This is James, the brother of the Lord, who came to Christ and became a leader in the church. So he saw James. What I write to you, behold, in the presence of God, it's not a lie. So I'm not lying about how much time I spent in Jerusalem. Only 15 days with Cephas. 15 days. Then I came to the region of Syria and Cilicia. Okay? Now there he's talking about where he went after that. So after 15 days seeing Peter and James, he left and went into Syria and Cilicia. Now notice what he says then. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So he had been converted uh, in Damascus. But now we're talking, that's up north. Now we're talking about Judea. <clears throat> they did not know him by face. They did not know him by face. They did not recognize him. But notice his reputation. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So his reputation was out there, but they didn't know him. They had not met him personally. But there was this rumor that now the greatest persecutor of the Christian faith is now the greatest preacher of the Christian faith. 
and therefore they glorified God. Then is where we get the 14 years, chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. There's the 14 years. The way Jews counted years, they're usually all-inclusive, so we're thinking the three years is part of the 14. So three years, he's in Arabia. 14 years, he's in the region of Cilicia and Syria. But during that time, he is not on any missionary journeys, and we don't know, um, we can't pinpoint exactly what he was doing. We all, and, and everybody conjectures, when you take the biggest persecutor of Christianity, at Christianity and turn him into the greatest preacher of Christianity, that doesn't happen to you overnight. He had to be taught. He had to be taught. This was his preparation time. If you look uh, throughout the Bible, you see that people have preparation times. Moses did. Elijah did. Times when God was working on them to prepare them for what was to come. And these 14 years were probably the preparation time to get ready for Paul to do what he was going to do. We date his conversion, as we talked about last week, we date his conversion at probably 31-32 A.D. Then when you add his uh, time, uh, 14 years, then we're up to 45-46 A.D., and we believe his first missionary journey was sometime between 46 and 48 AD. So it does fall into place these 14 years. Went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Then the next um, the next verse, why did he go to Jerusalem? I went up because of a revelation. In other words, he was told by God to go to Jerusalem. It was a revelation that he had that he should go to Jerusalem. He had avoided Jerusalem only been there once 15 days in 14 years. But now, now he's been, through a revelation, he was told to go. And what did he do? And set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, he presented the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. So God told him to go and he laid before, the implication is the apostles, the message that he had been given and that it should be preached to the Gentiles. Now this is very radical because when you grow up from the time you're a child and you're told to have nothing to do with Gentiles and that they are heathens and can't be saved, 
than to suddenly be told you're supposed to preach the gospel to Gentiles is pretty radical. But he wanted to make sure he was not running or this was vanity. The implication is that it was not. And then he makes a very important statement. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now there, his teaching is put into practice. The Galatians were being told, if you want to be faithful, after you believe in Christ, you need to keep the law. You need to be circumcised. Here Paul is saying, there is a converted Gentile who is with me. Who is with me. And he was not forced to be circumcised. So he is saying that even presenting this to the apostles, the apostles did not force Titus to be circumcised, which affirms exactly what he's going to teach those in Galatia. That this is not a necessary add-on to believing in Jesus Christ. It's not. It's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. And I received this from God, not from men. And even when I finally presented it, when I finally presented it to men, they didn't force Titus to be circumcised. So he is making the case for the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And that the ministry he had been given by God was not from man, but was the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Then he says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. All right, what he's saying is this. If you have the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you have a freedom under that gospel. And the freedom is that you do not have to keep the law to earn eternal salvation. You are no longer enslaved to the law. In fact, it goes farther than that. You're no longer enslaved to your sin because your sin is forgiven. But those people those false teachers that slip in, be they in Jerusalem or in Galatia, are stealing your freedom and trying to put you back into slavery. Back into slavery. They're trying to put you back under the law. They're trying to put you back and the emphasis is not on the forgiveness of sins, it's on what you do. That's going from freedom to slavery. Okay. 
So if they, if they forced uh, Titus to be circumcised, Paul is saying he's back now under slavery. He's lost his freedom because he's given up the freedom of the gospel and is now uh, imposing upon himself that he must do things, certain things, to keep, to, to show he's faithful, and that is a part of earning his salvation. That's what he's saying. All right. Everybody with me? Okay. Um, this is Paul's emphasis. Okay? This is Paul's emphasis. He goes on. Okay? To them we did not yield in submission for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See, what, what he's saying is, if I'm in Jerusalem and these false teachers slip in and I give in to them, then we are in submission to them. Then the truth of the gospel is not preserved. It is lost lost. Be it in Jerusalem or be it in Galatia, it's lost. And he is bound and determined to defend that gospel to the death rather than allow it to be distorted, perverted, changed. It has to be by grace, the action of God for us through Jesus Christ. And any notion that changes that is a perversion and a distortion. And as he says, it's not really another gospel. There is no other gospel. Okay? So this is a fight to the death to preserve the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's still a battle today because we still hear constantly, even from those, there are, here, here's the problem. We are very proud people. And in spite of the fact that God's word tells us that we are sinful and can do nothing to save ourselves, we still believe we can. We still believe we can at times. You ever does something real good and say, boy, I bet God liked that one. Okay? Kind of pat yourself on the back. You know, I bet I can ask for something today after I did that. It's a natural inclination. Anytime you preach to proud human beings, they need to do something. It feeds that pride that I can do something. Luther said the greatest blasphemy in the world is to say I can save myself. Because God says you can't. Yes. Wait just. Is it possible that some people feel it's, they just cannot be without, they have to do something. Yes. They cannot feel that they can just accept totally. 
That's right. And that's called the stumbling block of the gospel. It's a stumbling block when you're told you can do nothing and you don't like it because you're so proud. Therefore, you stumble over the gospel because it's a free gift. And you can't get it through your thick head. I got to do something. Where God says, no, you can't. And that's the gospel that has to be preserved and taught. That's why you have to hear the gospel every time you come to church. If I stood in the pulpit my whole ministry and told you, you need to do this, 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 and this, and this, all the time, what are you going to come to believe? I got to do this, 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 and this. The gospel of Jesus Christ and his free gift to us has to be preached constantly because we are such proud humans, so proud. If we don't hear it, we will begin to think we can save ourselves. So the gospel has to be preached, as we say, in its truth and purity. And that means without adding any works whatsoever to it. All right, thoughts, final thoughts, questions? Since God uh, chose him before birth to be a servant, it seems like it took him a long time before he finally converted him, and you wonder whether by going through all of this stuff is what made him such a great preacher. Well, it may have been. Uh, the 14 years that he spent, it may have been. Um, you know, you, you ask, why did it take God so long to change him? Wrong question. God does what he wants when he wants. And we all know people who have been witnessed to about Jesus Christ. And when they were first witnessed to, nothing happened. It was years later when they came to Christ. But the 14 years may have been a training time for him to become the preacher that he was. Other things. Uh, Paul, when he got knocked on his can, was, that's when everything started for him. That's well, true. that's right. I mean, God had to knock him down. And, and you can point to times in your life where God has gotten your attention. He knows how to do it. But he's doing it for your good. Because he loves you. All right. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. One more thing. We found the car key. Somebody doesn't have their car key, and I think this is Mercedes. So if you've got a Mercedes, otherwise I'm going to go try to find this.